Kia I'm Maria, and I'm Māori and Pakia. And I'm Kate, and I'm Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a biracial person. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Bunwurrung and Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And we want to really offer our respects to the elders of this land, past, present and those to come. And also acknowledge traditional owners from the lands where this podcast is reaching you. Today we are going to be chatting to Lauren Nguyen about being biracial. Lauren, we're so excited to have you in the studio. Lauren is a traveller. COVID has really made her um, settle back down in Melbourne, Um, but she's also a dancer. She's very, very crafty. She loves sewing and macrame slash macrame. Uh, Please send us a message to tell us what the correct pronunciation is. Lauren, thank you for coming in and chatting to us. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's an honour to be part of something so special. We always kick off our pod with the question, what is your mix? My mix is Laos and Vietnamese. (laughs) They're neighbouring countries. Mm -hmm, Very much. I'm literally like landlocked in the middle, but also like free to the ocean on the side of it. (laughs) And it's funny because Thai and Laos are very similar. So you could say that whole area is kind of like my background. (laughs) And so how did your parents meet? My parents met both trying to escape, obviously, communism coming through Vietnam and Laos. Um, My dad came as a refugee with my older sister and my brother. So they were at refugee camps and I believe they went through Thailand as well. But my mum escaped Laos on her own without her family. So she went to Thailand and then someone sponsored her to come to Australia. And that person mutually knew my dad and my mum and kind of set them up. And that's where the magic happened. <laughs> and did you grow up with both of your parents? I grew up predominantly with my mum. Dad came back into the picture maybe when I was in grade four or so, but they were both pretty present in my life. Yeah. And so your mum is from Laos and your dad is from Vietnam? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you think having your mum as your primary caregiver like influenced your biracial life? I would say that it has made me embrace the Laos side more so. I didn't really identify with my Vietnamese side um, until later on in life when I, I think it was like when I was a teenager, I was like, I I am Vietnamese. I just um, didn't grow up with it and I would like to be more in touch with it. It's funny because in primary school, Vietnamese was the language that you learned. You know how you learn the extra language? And I was the Vietnamese girl in the non-Vietnamese speaking class. And it was so funny throughout like my whole primary school. And I was I, I was a little bit embarrassed, but I also understood why it had happened. And um, yeah, it was fine. It was just, yeah, I didn't really identify with my Vietnamese side till later on in life. Do you speak Vietnamese now? I 
don't speak Vietnamese now. I am one of those people that kind of knows like words here and there. Um, I'm really good at counting. I can tell you that. that <laughs> when I was in Vietnam, I was really good with counting the money for them. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't speak it. But I can kind of, I do listen to the language a lot more these days. And I try and pick up words that I can understand and um, try my best to remember them. Don't know how to use them in context, really, but slowly. So those primary school Vietnamese classes really didn't pay off? Nah, I wouldn't say so. I know how to say my name is Lauren and, you know, the standard things. Like, how are you? <laughs> yeah, and even then, it's um, it's funny because I can actually, like, if I'm reading Vietnamese words, I'm pretty good at pronouncing them, but I don't know what I'm saying. Because you know how it has, like, hats and dots here and there? I kind of know what it means and, like, how to say them, but I yeah, the meaning, forget about it. You could be saying anything. Yep, and yeah, pretty much. Oh my gosh. Interesting. And how do you feel about that? I don't know if it's like this with any other culture, but in the Asian culture, if you're if you tell someone you're from a certain background, they expect you to speak that language straight away. So when I introduce myself, I get people speaking Vietnamese to me almost instantly. So it's kind of like uh yeah, that's being biracial has made that really interesting for me. Sometimes I do say it and sometimes I, I avoided saying it in the past because I was like, I don't want to, you know, be embarrassed by not knowing how to speak the language. Do you speak Lao? I do speak Laos and I understand Thai. I imagine it's quite interesting because I think Australians, um, especially in the 90s, probably had a strong sense of what being Vietnamese was, but I don't know if they had the same understanding of what it meant to be from Laos. Yeah, don't I? It's hard to say because the Laos community here, especially in Melbourne, is quite small. So <laughs> everyone's pretty much like living together. So you either live in like the western suburbs or you live in like a small pocket in the eastern suburbs. But everyone knows each other. For Laos New Year, we'd always come together. We kind of mix with like Thai people and stuff as well for like community things. But yeah, they they didn't have as much expectation, I would say, just because it's a lot smaller and it's not um. Yeah, not as established in the community, but like they do expect you to speak the language and to be proud and to share your culture with others and stuff like that. So that, growing up with my mom has made it a big part of my life. And so when people ask you that dreaded question, where are you from? What do you say? I usually say I'm from Australia because I was born mm. here. And if they keep prompting with questions, oh, and like, oh, but what are you? then I will say I'm Laos and Vietnamese. Yeah. <laughs> Happens a lot. Of course it does. Yeah. Classic. So growing up with your mum, was it really important to her to really give you the, the Laos culture and, and, you know, teach you the language and show you the traditions and stuff? Was that something that she really was strong on? She actually really was because the Laos community was so small. Pretty much all my friends when I was young, we used to call each other cousins, even though we weren't really cousins. Mm. It was kind of the thing, like they were all my cousins. We went to Laos school together. We did traditional Laos dancing together. Oh my gosh. Tell us about traditional Laos dancing. So it, I think you would have seen it too with like Thai dancing. So imagine like gold and just like <laughs> silk outfits and opulence, bendy hand finger things that you have to do in like really slow, really pretty, elegant can't say I was, to be honest. I got told off a lot. Being like, stay, we were dancing back then too, but I was also doing hip hop dancing. I got told off a lot for bopping. Um, I just remember that. And she would always say to me, Lauren, no bopping. 
elegant hands please and she used to ask me to put my hands in warm water every night so my fingers were really flexible yeah so we were trained at quite a young age to like really embrace our culture and even though I didn't want to do the performances because we had to do lots of performances I actually really appreciate it now that I'm older that I did get to identify with my background and I had fun learning that with our friends and we would always just like eat Laos food together and hang out afterwards yeah I've never heard the put your hands in warm water to make your fingers more bendy. And my hands are really, look, I'll show you guys right now. They're not very flexible. Usually they can go far, really far back. So it's just to make it look more elegant. And the more like flexible you are, the better you are at last dancing. Yeah. For everyone listening at home, I just tried to bend my fingers back and I can't bend my fingers back that far either. Lauren's out here being like, I'm not that flexible in my hands, but let me tell you, shoes. <laughs> it's like a 45 degree angle. Mine are like straight up. <laughs> All that warm water has really paid off. Thanks, mom. Thanks. Thanks to my last dance teacher too. <laughs> Maria, did you ever do any cultural dancing? Any, you know... Fingers in warm water for you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't do um, any cultural dancing, even though performance and and dance is really prominent in Māori culture. So they do a lot of, you know, the haka is essentially a dance uh, and they do a lot of what's called kapa haka. So it's like a lot of waiata, which is songs, haka-like movements, and they use poise, which are you would make them with like a plastic bag, a bunch of fluff and some wool. (laughs) And the, the movements are, are beautiful. And I always wanted to be part of a kapahaka group, but I, I didn't feel moldy enough. And I mean, I grew up in Southland, so super, super white area. Half the kids were white anyway in kapahaka. But the funny thing is because I can sing quite well. And that was something that I was really known for at school. There was this time where they, I think it was like What Now or something like that, which is like a kid's show in New Zealand, and they were asking for submissions from schools for, for from talented people. So I was one of the people that was picked because I can sing. And I was like, oh, great, this is going to be fun. Like I can just sing a song um, and maybe I'll be on TV and that will be something fun. Um but what ended up happening was the teacher, I went in with, I think, a song that I had thought that was just a random song um, that I wanted to sing. And the teacher said that I actually had to do a Māori song. Do I know any Māori songs? Do you know any kabahaka movements? Do you want to do a dance? And they put me in this fucking grass skirt thing and made me sing a song that I probably mispronounced half the words on. And filmed it, and that was my submission. And little Maria just wanted to sing J Lo. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. And yeah, it was it was awful. And yeah, it made me feel even more disconnected. Whew. There is literally no escape. Like, <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't like it. It's insane. Wild. Wild. Absolutely wild. Lauren. I know that you do still do dance now and I'm really curious about whether your positive experience doing cultural dancing, you know, is the reason that you think you still dance today. Um, I guess it kind of introed me to being comfortable performing because at a young age I was quite shy 
but I liked performing at home. And then I think the Laos dancing gave me like a step to be quite confident. And my brother started dancing and he saw that I wanted to dance and brought me to dance classes. And if I didn't have dance, I don't think I would be half the person I am today. Even like when it comes to being biracial and multicultural, because the people that I grew up with made me really comfortable with who I was. Where were the other members of your dance group from? Most predominantly, most people were Filipino, but you had someone that was like Filipino Australian. Um, we had, yeah, we had like a few different cultures coming together. So I wouldn't say super biracial, but very multicultural is a very welcoming space. And I feel like growing up in the West Side, you're more exposed to um, different like um, cultures and nationalities that you wouldn't expect, you don't usually see elsewhere. So it was it was really nice for me and it didn't matter who you were, but coming together to dance and to, you know, compete together for competitions and stuff, like it, I, your background has been dropped because we're all together. Like no one identifies you as this person or this background and whatnot, which I really enjoyed like growing up in the West. Did you have any other biracial people around or were they like full Laos or full Thai or something? Um, that's a really interesting question because most of the kids that I grew up with were actually full Laos, full Laos or like Laos and Thai, but I was like the only Laos Vietnamese girl and until like I went to a one Laos party and there was someone else that was also like Laos Vietnamese, I didn't feel so alone because I, yeah, I didn't understand why everyone was like a full combo and I was like a little mix on the side over here. (laughs) Um, yeah, but later on, um, like throughout high school and stuff, there were some biracial people in my life, but predominantly also people were mostly Vietnamese or Filipino and um, there was only a couple of people that were biracial. And so you felt that difference really strongly, even though Vietnam and Laos are actually culturally quite similar in many ways. Yeah, definitely. Wow. I w- it's really interesting because both of us are half white we were super curious about how a biracial combo would work mm-hmm. without that, you know, white half being part of it um, yeah. and whether you'd feel as, I guess, othered in a way. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like yes. Yeah, and even though, like, they're both from the Asian background, the cultures are quite different between the two. Um, I would say if I was Laos and Thai, it might have been a little bit less and it was quite similar, but because it's Vietnamese and Laos, like Laos is not a very common country to come by anyway. I think that's what makes it quite unusual for people. And I made it easier for people if they didn't know what Laos was. I always said Thai. So I I even had to identify myself with another country. So people kind of understood who I was because Laos wasn't, it's not something that you, like you don't go to Laos very often to travel and whatnot. And people are just unaware that it kind of exists. And this is such a dog move on my behalf, but I yeah. went to um, Southeast Asia for a couple months, a couple years ago, and I went, um, I went to Thailand and Vietnam, and there was an option to go to Laos in the middle, and I was like, oh no, I can't be bothered. <laughs> so I fully skipped over it. It's funny that you say that because I haven't been yet. It was Ooh. supposed to be a lockdown year that we were going with a family. I've been to Vietnam. I don't know what what it is, but I didn't think to travel to my own countries at first because you know when you're young you're like yeah let's go everywhere else let's go to Japan I went to all the other places I went all the way to Canada and I like Laos was on the way back in my head I was like how have I not visited my own country and I really do want to visit but I wanted to take my mum so that was like coming back and then COVID hit because we literally had a Laos trip planned as well 
So it was, yeah, bad timing. Yeah. And has your mum been back to Laos? She has been back. Um, we did send her on a solo trip with her friends. Uh, she had the best time. I think she was there for like a month or two. And she had, yeah, she loved being with like family and whatnot again. So we wanted to go together as like a family. But she hadn't gone for years. I guess like after um, immigrating to Australia, the first thing on her mind was her kids. Priority was like getting the kids through school, all that kind of stuff before she even thought about going back home. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really common immigrant experience mm. for sure. Yeah. Um, my mum's situation is that uh, she actually hasn't been back to Iran in 30 years. I have a lot of family similar to you that live in different places, like a lot of family in LA. Um, I think that's pretty common, especially with like repressive governments. <laughs> um, there's a lot of Iranians in a lot of different countries. But my, yeah, so we, we would always go to LA to visit my grandma and, and things like that. But she hasn't been back and I've been back more recently than she has, um, which is super Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And hers is complicated because she married a non-Muslim and so whether she is able to go back or not is a question because of the, the political situation. So I, I think there's a huge sense of loss for her. But certainly growing up, yes, similar to your mum, her priority was me and like getting me through school and that kind of classic thing. Mm-hmm. I'm from New Zealand and, and both of my mixes are, you know, both parts of my identity are from New Zealand. But I haven't been back to like my family's Marae and my family's Urupa, which is the cemetery, um, because it's at the top of the North Island and I grew up at the bottom of the South Island. Um, and I'm and I am hesitant to go back because well to go there because um I'm scared of being rejected. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also have these like, you know, huge expectations of like, you know, going to the motherland and going, you know, putting my feet on my family's ancestral lands and all of that. Do you feel a similar type of thing? In seeing that, yeah, it's, I guess it's pretty nerve wracking. I've thought about it a lot. Luckily for us, for me, myself, like it wouldn't be as intimidating because we actually call our cousins a lot through like I mean, thank God for the internet and Facebook Messenger. They call my mom quite often and I do get to speak to them. And there are um, they do have younger kids that are around my age, so I'm not too scared, but I do have that feeling of it's almost like an internal thing where I have to address to like going to the motherland and really letting myself embrace the culture and not be so scared and not to feel bad that I haven't like gone to visit in the first place. And um just to see that what my family, what my mom has had to go through when she tells me stories of how she grew up and, you know, it's very different to how we grew up here in Australia. So I would like to respect that and live kind of like forget about everything that is back home and kind of just let myself be in, like involved in their culture and like really, yeah, really spend the time and like connect with my family there and other people in Laos too that I wouldn't otherwise back home. Maybe get back into that traditional house dancing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Suck your hands in warm water tonight. <laughs> my mom would be so happy. I think she would cry. There was this, there's this one thing. So they call it Nang San Khan. Um, it's almost like the beautiful blossoming, like 
teenager girl like they, they choose a really really pretty girl and you have to dress up you don't do the dancing you have someone holding an umbrella for you while you standing next to a, a cute louse guy and my I, they asked me one year I used to get teased a lot for being quite chubby as well and then I somehow blossomed into this beautiful flower they were like oh Lauren can you please be Nang Sang Khan this year and I said no and my mom was crying. She's like, please, can you just do it? You're, this is such an opportunity for you. Please, for me. And I, I just couldn't do it. Devastated. <laughs> she was – I can't even explain to this day how sad she was. I don't think she spoke to me the whole week because she was so upset. Why didn't you want to do it? I think I was at that rebellious phase where I was like, nah, these guys teased me when I was young. And I was like, it shouldn't matter what I look like to begin with. And – uh, yeah, I was. I also just wanted to make sure that they understood that. Um, yeah, it's it, it's how you act that you receive back to you know, like as like young kids as well. It shouldn't have you shouldn't have these expectations put on you to look a certain way, to be a certain way, to please others. Your name is a um your last name Nguyen. Did mm-hmm. I say that right? Yeah. Um, it's a really traditional Vietnamese name, isn't it? It's like the Smith. It of it is Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my year twelve class, the chemistry class, was twelve Nguyens. <gasps> oh my So God. imagine like the back of your jumper, but like a whole bunch of Nguyens. That was my my, my <laughs> classroom pretty much. How do you feel about your name? Um, growing up, I I did want something a little bit more. I don't know, unusual. I felt like my name was quite common. And also I got given Lauren, which kind of – it was kind of nice in primary school. But as I got older, I was wondering why I didn't get given a Laos name or a Vietnamese name. It did help me kind of fit in. But then I kind of longed for the um, the background behind a name. And Nguyen was quite common, so I still – I wanted something different, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, my name's Kate Robinson, which is – the most common name that has ever existed, maybe other than Lauren Ewan. <laughs> well, I don't know how many Lauren Ewans there are, but um, yeah, I think it's really difficult to have a name that feels really disconnected mm-hmm. from from your sense of yourself. Yeah. It's like, and I completely understand like migrant parents wanting to give their kids names that um, are going to give them the best pop possible opportunity like that really makes sense to me because I'm sure your mum's name is quite ethnic as my mum's name is and so they've also had that experience of saying their name a thousand times and people being like what how do you spell that it so it's it's really difficult but I I don't know like if I was to have kids whether I would want them to have more ethnic names or not I'm kind of on the fence I've I've had this conversation with my partner quite a lot because he's um he's actually Malaysian Chinese, but he's like Muslim. So then um our backgrounds are quite different already from like a Buddhist background to a Muslim background. So we've also thought about those like what would we name our children, and then would we lean more towards something more unique or something? Yeah, that's you know quite common. So I get what you mean. I feel like we're kind of leaning more towards the ethnic name because the names kind of stand out to us. And when I did travel to Malaysia, 
and like we lived there for six months, I noticed that I could not pronounce or I could not remember anyone's names because they were so different. And um, But it made me work harder to remember their names because I found it so unusual and interesting and I would like that to be embraced if we did have children. So we're kind of like, yeah, we've had talks about it, but we're leading more towards the unique name side. Wow, if you guys have kids, they're going to be multiracial. Yeah. Multi religions. <laughs> it's going to be a lot. It is going to be a lot. We've had. Um, I remember the first time that we. Uh, I traveled to Malaysia to meet his mom. The first question she asked me was if I would convert. It was literally like the first time, and I didn't. I didn't actually quite understand. I just nodded because I was like nervous meeting her, and she was over the moon that I said yes. And I remember my mom when I called her. She's like over my dead body. So you know, it was already um, some conflict there. We're good now. We've been together for quite a while, so we've both made an agreement with both the families. But I can, yeah, the conflict was quite interesting to begin with because I never really thought about that being with him. It wasn't like the first thing I thought of. All oh, that our religions or like our family would clash over something like that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I know. It's also so interesting because, like, there's no white in there at all. <laughs> no, really not. We're all from, like, Southeast Asia. And, like, for him being Malaysian, Chinese is quite common in Malaysia. And, uh, well, I feel, I usually I feel just purely Asian to myself. Like, I don't really, yeah. So it was weird to begin with when we had to introduce our parents because that's when it came through because for us we saw each other like a blank slate it was never like you're this and you're that yeah I wonder if you have a sense of belonging in being Asian so growing up I didn't really think about it too much but now that I'm older I do have like um, the sense of belonging with my Asian culture and kind of all Asian cultures in general, I feel like we have grown up with quite similar expectations and cultural beliefs from our parents. And you can see that it kind of varies between certain cultures, but it's all quite similar in that sense. And uh, I didn't think this would ever happen, but I always just crave Asian food now that I'm getting older. I think it's something that happens over time because my mom usually only wants to eat last food. And I was like, mom, there's so much other food that we can eat. And now that I'm getting older, when we were living in Canada, all I wanted was good Asian food. And it was something that I missed when you're away from something that you're so used to having and you don't really, you're not mindful of how much you loved it and you appreciate it. It's starting to make me appreciate my background and like the culture and being Asian so much more. Can you describe a bit about, for people that don't know what um, traditional Laos food is? All right, here we go. Ready. Uh, traditional Laos food. I would say Laos food is quite fresh for the most part, kind of like Thai food. Um, they have a lot of like fresh salads. So whether it be like a beef salad, chicken, even like fish, it's usually called lap. I don't know if anyone's ever had that before, but it's yes. yes. um yeah, it's a very fresh salad. And Thai and Laos cuisine is quite similar in some ways. It's just the... um flavoring that varies I find that Thai food has a bit more like sweet kicks to it whereas Laos is a bit more savory so we do do like our own pho which is kind of crazy it's like a Vietnamese take of food but then we've made it our own as well so there's like a Laos pho and there's a Thai pho we've made our own kinds of you know broth our seasoning our flavoring so I guess like being in that area we kind of cook similar food in a sense if that makes sense yeah 
Do you cook Lao or Vietnamese food at home? Um, I cook some Laos food. I'm not very good yet. My mum always gives me a hard time for that. <laughs> um, Malaysian food. Oh, sorry, Malaysian. Um, Vietnamese food, I cook quite a lot. Ooh, we're going to send this podcast to your future mother-in-law. She's going <laughs> to love that. Yeah, actually, I learned a lot of Malaysian food because when we were living there, we were cooking so much for we had a food truck. So I learned, I know how to cook more Malaysian food than I do some of my own. So um, sorry, mom. <laughs> Wait, so what, tell us the food truck yeah. story. Um, we moved to, so on the way back from Canada, his family wanted to open a food truck, so we decided to move to Malaysia for a bit. We lived there for six months running a food truck with his family. So that was um, a bit of a culture shock for me and religion shock, obviously. Um, but, yeah, I learned a lot about the food and the culture. Do you have a um, recommendation for a Laos restaurant that in Melbourne somewhere? <laughs> We're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> a Laos restaurant, that's so... Or you just go to your mum's place, so you don't go on. <laughs> That's an interesting thing because I actually don't know any Laos restaurants being here in Australia or anywhere I've travelled really. It's kind of like still kept in the home. It's similar with Iranian food actually. Like I think a lot of places have Afghani food for instance or people like have a sense of like kebabs. Even though there's like a huge population of Maldives in Australia, um, because Maldi food is really – um, labour intensive, like one of the main traditional ways of cooking food is a hangi where you dig um, into the ground and then you have hot coals and you essentially um, you put the food into baskets and then you put wet cloths down and you bury the food and you bury the food for like six to eight hours and then you come back and, you know, the chicken, the, the fish, the maybe not fish, the chicken, the lamb, the beef, the veggies are like steamed and smoked yeah. and like it's so beautiful. But you can't really replicate that in like a restaurant setting. There's like this – um, there's a – I think there's a catering company that often runs out of Section 8 in the city um, that does – Hungies, but they do them in this like big thing they call a kai cooker, which is like basically that steaming and that smoking, but it doesn't taste like a real hungy. Like you know the yeah. difference, so so it's not really like commercialized. Oh, that'd be so hard to commercialize, yeah, right. especially when you're cooking it for that many hours um, yeah. on a daily. I think they would be getting no sleep. Yeah, it'd be bonkers. <laughs> and like my dad used to lay hungies for the school that we went to when we were really young. Every Friday he'd come down and spend the whole day digging a new hungy pit, like getting the coals ready, putting the food into the baskets and like making sure that everything was great and, and bearing it again and then monitoring it for hours and hours mm. and hours. It was like a whole day thing. So that's just not something that you can like put in a restaurant but you know? it's it's so awesome it's almost like an art form of its own and to be able to eat that food and um, understand that it, it's part of your culture and it takes so much love and time that when you do eat it it's really something special I think that's kind of like um, most people with like um, multicultural backgrounds you start to realize that the food that you're replicating sometimes when it's in a commercial setting it doesn't taste the same mm-hmm. because there are certain procedures that are usually done in like um, yeah, it's like an art of its own, even if you're charcoaling something or, you know, like steaming something, even like the like the produce that you use, it makes a really big difference to how it does taste to you usually. Yeah. Is there, with hungies, do people reuse the same holes that they've dug? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, it depends though. Dad used to dig them all over the place in the in the field at the school. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> and he'd have like a desert, like at his house, he used to lay a hungy every Christmas that we were out there with him, and he'd have like a designated like corner of his yard that he would kind of dig little hungy pits in. Yeah. Okay. And how do you do? You know how you monitor it when it's below ground? Like I think it's something to. There's like a there's like a stick or something that pokes out of the ground. I'm not too sure. I'll probably have to hit him up about that because <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, cool. it's crazy. Interesting. Yeah, I grew up eating a lot of fusion Iranian food because my parents were vegetarian, oh. and um, Iranian food doesn't really lend itself to vegetarianism. And actually, I went to Iran for three months, and I was like staying with aunts and uncles. I had one day where I looked to my uncle and I was like, Hadi, like, can we please have some more veggies? We're just constantly eating meat and like rice. Like it's it's like a huge part of the diet. Every household has their tiny little barbecue grill. Absolutely every household has one. Doesn't matter if you don't have a balcony, like you're out the front, you're on the steps in the stairwell. That's just so a part of what you eat every day. Anyway, I, I said this to him and in Iran, herbs are also like much more, they're not just herbs, they're like a salad. I guess it's actually similar in like Vietnam and Laos as well. So they're not just garnish. And uh, equally, onions are often eaten raw. And so my uncle literally picked up from his plate half a raw onion and was like, Here's a vegetable. No, he, babe. Here you go. You're not Eat it. Of it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. no <laughs> I wonder if it, that's a thing, though, because I noticed like, when I was traveling to, it's always very meat heavy, rice heavy, bread heavy. And then if you get veggies, it's always like the after. Like, if you get it, it's like, I don't know, like five veggies in that whole stir fry or something like that. It was really confusing because I was vegetarian like while I was traveling and sometimes I had to, yeah, it was really hard to order food because I was just like there's almost nothing in certain places where you go. Absolutely. I um, went to Iran pretty much vegetarian. I was eating meat maybe once or twice a week, not mm-hmm. not regular and it was to do with iron levels and that kind of thing and I think within one week – I was like, I'm a full meat eater. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. I'm done. Here I am. And I, and I have not returned back to being a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Like that broke me. My grandma was like, what? <laughs> I think Malaysia broke me too because I was vegetarian for quite a while. Even when I was in Australia before I'd left, I was like, mom, I'm doing it. Like I'm being vegetarian. She's like, what are you going to eat? You're not going to be able to eat anything. And I remember going to Malaysia still like, I'm going to be vegetarian. I'm still strong. But everything was meat heavy. And if I could eat veggie, it was like lettuce. Just like uh-huh. like you said, how they gave you the onion. I got given lettuce as like my salad or something. And I just remember thinking, I don't think I'm going to survive six months. I'm just going to have to eat meat. And I also don't want to change everyone else's diet around me. So I did change. But I just, it came to like, I came to a realization that our cultures usually revolve around meat. But it's also because the scarcity for it back then you know made them see it as a like a privilege now and they always want to enjoy it because it was quite scarce for them back then so I kind of understand yeah and I think also it is different in a in a 
setting where you're eating together, yeah, like sharing food, that kind of cultural practice is it just means that it's much harder to be vegetarian. Mm. Yeah. I feel like in Western culture, how they treat meat is very different to other cultures. Like, you know, you you might be eating meat in Malaysia, but like they would use almost every part of the animal. They wouldn't just be like, oh, yuck, we're going to throw out the bones and we're going to throw out this, you know, like they would make bone broth for the soups and like all of, you know, like a, a, it's a different way of treating meat than it is here. Oh, yeah, 100%. I grew up eating like organs and stuff too, not knowing really that that was what I was eating. Um, yeah, my mom always just fed it to me. And I remember when someone was saying like, oh, did you know that people eat pig's blood? I actually didn't know that I'd been eating pig's blood all my life. And I was, um, <laughs> I remember in school they were talking about it and I was like, oh, that thing that comes in like the white container from Footscray Market? Because that's what I knew it as. Like it comes in a white container and it says pig's blood. I was like, I didn't know that people don't eat that. It just didn't occur to me <laughs> for a long time. Chicken feet, also the same thing. Kind of grosses people out. That was like my delicacy when I was a kid. At Yum Child was my favorite. So it was, yeah. I get exactly what you mean. Exactly. <laughs> I think also when you describe your dad like laying the hungy, that kind of connection to food is really different. Yeah. You're there totally for hours place. and the care that you put into that food is really mm. different from just get a 10-minute meal. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you had a, a watershed moment where you connected with both parts of your identity or are you still feeling – like a straddling between them? Uh, I think when I was away from my family for two, like two years living in Canada, I think that's when I really started to think more about like my background, my mom and my dad and how I really did connect with them. I think it's funny because we were talking about it before, but it was when I was craving the food that I didn't have access to. That was when I really um, took the time to think to myself, you know, like that is something really special to me and I would like to learn more about it when I go back home. And I have been trying to get in touch more with that. I speak more Laos at home now because I don't want to lose the language as well. Like I don't have Vietnamese, but at least I don't want to lose the Laos side. Um, I I see my dad more often too and I do ask more about their background and like how they grew up just to hear their story because I feel like I wasn't very interested in that before and I wanted to spend a lot more time with my family coming back home and really just um, enjoy the moments that I have with them and, you know, just like cultural things together. But it took a, a long time. I remember primary school and high school, I wasn't really connected with it, even though I did the last dancing and whatnot. But it's not something you think of as a kid. Yeah. And, and like being in Australia as well, which is like super white, I feel like that might have made you feel some type of way, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um I don't know if you guys had this, but I used to bring like a noodle packets to school and then like you'd crush the noodles and you put the seasoning in. And I remember the um, the white kids would always be like, oh, what are you having? And we would do trays so I can have some of their sandwich because I wouldn't be getting sandwiches like very often and they would want some of my noodles. And I felt like that was like the beginning of like seeing that we had cultural differences, but we could still like be interested and like come together and appreciate it. Yeah. They were getting such a good trade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted that sandwich. I was like, my mom's not going to make me this sandwich. I, I want some of that, but we'll trade. I have lots of these noodles at home. <laughs> I want this white bread and veggie sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Don't worry, it's an eventuality. So I 
did you grow up watching like Australian television or like Viet movies or Laos mm. movies? Um, yeah, I guess I childhood. I think it was a mix of both. So I did watch your regular like Cheese TV, um, ABC Kids and whatever was on like Channel 10, you know, Neighbours and all that kind of stuff. But I also watched a lot of um, like Thai, Laos dramas because my mom was watching that stuff. And the only way to watch it back then, I don't think this was legal, but <laughs> they would have that one lady that had access to satellite. She would record it on VHS and then rent it out to people. So my yeah, my mom was part of that. A lot of the last people did. So we would always had her VHS and we would watch the videos. So there was some like memory of like certain ones that my brother and I loved and we would always beg my mom to watch that drama, like a Thai drama. I also watched a lot of um Korean stuff too when I was young, like not knowing it was Korean actually, but we did watch that kind of stuff because my auntie was interested in that. Vietnamese wise, I didn't watch I don't think I watched any movies. I heard a lot of music because um, when you're in Footscray, you always hear Vietnamese music and whatnot. And then you have like the karaoke on the screen and you would, yeah. yeah. But otherwise, um, a lot of Thai, Thai dramas as well. Yeah. Isn't it funny how like that's the case, like you're from Laos, but you're watching Thai dramas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so weird. I think that's why I understood Thai growing up because like, I was watching Thai dramas and I actually, at the young age, I didn't actually differentiate between Laos and Thai. To me, they were kind of the same. Until I got older, I was like, well, the language is a little bit different. But yeah, I don't think like Laos was quite the slow developing country. So actors and stuff, and we're quite small compared to all the other countries. So yeah, we just kind of identified ourselves with the Thai dramas and celebrated their actors and whatnot. (laughs) I also want to know where this um, this Laos woman is who who had the satellite TV <laughs> and then was you know running the running the rental ramshackle out the back like uh, bless her what an entre- entrepreneurial spirit honestly it was opposite Footscray station so I don't know if any of you guys grew up in Footscray but it's literally right next to, right next to the fresh food market. Yeah, she's, she'd been there for years and like people would actually drive down from the east side to come rent videos and stuff from her. She made a killing because I remember going to her house from a young age and I was like, whoa, there are some things in here that I've never seen before because she had like really nice couches, really expensive handbags. And like, I was like, okay, clearly it's from the videos that she's, um, she's renting out. She's making a killing. She was like the only person that was disappointed when the internet came. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Have you chatted to your mum about her experience being in Australia in like, was it the 90s that she came or the 80s? The 80s, yeah. Um, She found it quite challenging being away from like all her immediate family. Um, The people that really kept her going was literally the last community. So like I said before, people would literally like – live in the same area just so that they could be social and have some support and um at the moment like if you think about Delahaye, St Albans area that whole area like is like that's where the last community is in the west and that's where my mom felt most comfortable we li- actually lived in West Footscray when we were young but we moved to that area just so she could be a little bit closer to them yeah she struggled quite a lot with English and learning English um 
she did like odd jobs here and there. She tried her best. She still thinks she's not very good, but she is pretty good. And when she talks to my friends and she has conversations, like she's come a really long way. So I think um, the language barrier was one of the hardest things she had to face and trying to adapt with all the changes that happens in the Western world that she wasn't quite prepared for coming from like like a rural area in Laos and like farming, you know, that was her thing. Like growing her own food, you have your own animals and stuff and then coming here where it's kind of like, you know, you're not really neighboring with your neighbors in that sense because usually if you harvest, you'll share, you know, you knew everyone. So that was quite difficult for her at the start. But once she got to know people, it was a lot easier and she's a pretty friendly person. So she made pretty much the whole street our friends <laughs> gave them fresh veggies and stuff like that that's my mom's like way of showing love she always like grows her own food and then shares it so I think that's what kept her going honestly that's probably why the last community was something big in my upbringing because it's what brought her um, comfort and you know sense of belonging in Australia and it sounds like some of that has passed down to you because you're also a nature girl. Yes, and I grow my own food now. It's been um, – I'm not as good as my mom, let's say that, because sometimes she'll still come to the garden and be like, mm, I think you planted too many. And I was like, Mom, I'm just going to let it go and it's going to happen. It's just, just going to grow. But, yeah, like it's been passed down without me even realising that I enjoyed the same things that she did because as a young kid – I didn't like because I'm seven years apart from my oldest brother so he wouldn't really want to play with me because I was way too young for him so I would be in the garden watching my mum do her gardening I'd play with worms and bugs and just you know be with nature so it definitely has passed down and she shows me the importance of eating the food that we grow ourselves and yeah it was a part of her culture and I'm really grateful that she shared it with me as well. I think growing up is basically just about slowly turning into your parents. in different ways (laughs) agreed I'm slowly seeing a bit of my mom and my dad actually in myself as I get older and I thought I had different values and stuff when you're a teenager you think you know it all you think Mm -hmm. you are this person but then when you reach your 20s and you're really like discovering yourself you start to realize that yeah you are kind of like a little mold of your parents here and there and like it's a good thing it's something that we should embrace and not really hide from when you're a teenager, you're kind of just like, yeah, you're trying to, you always want to be someone different. My, I cannot relate. My mum is like a little shy angel. She's very quiet um, and she doesn't like raise her voice and she's not really like super fiery or anything like that. And I'm, she kind of, every time she's around me for like an extended period of time, she's like, where did you come from? <laughs> Like, how did I create you? <laughs> and we're all like, all me and my brothers are like all really loud and really silly. And like, my dad's not, he's, he's loud and he's a, he's a big dude, but he doesn't have like a huge vibrant personality. He's quite serious. And like, all three of us are just like really silly, goofy, like sing songy kids. So we're, we're not really like, I mean, probably at that base level with like values we are quite similar to mum, but in, in terms of our personalities, like, Different. yeah, my mum is very much like, how did I, what? <laughs> Where did you kids come from? What about with like aunties and stuff? Oh, yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. My, um, I recently met, my dad's one of 12, um, and I had only known one of his sisters growing up, um, and the last time I was in New Zealand, 
in 2018, I want to say, or 2019, um, I met three of his sisters um, who I hadn't met before, and they were a hoot. Like, mm. I, you know, I just sat down and, like, started cracking up with them. My Auntie Lydia is, like, missing most of her teeth, and she was just, like, slapping her gums together, like, cracking up, cracking gags and stuff. I fit right in. She grabbed me, and she was like, I love you. You're my favorite. And I was like, that's right, girl. Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. So I, I guess, yeah, I, I can see myself in them and, and that wider part of my family. But like in my immediate family, I feel like I'm, I'm very, very different to my mum and my dad. But isn't that so beautiful that even though you didn't spend time growing up with your aunts, that there is that really close connection and sense of who you are in the world. It just makes me feel like it's big. it's bigger than us and it's not in the nature nurture argument you're just like so connected to where your roots come from regardless of whether you know all the histories yeah (laughs) (laughs) i don't think we have any more questions do you have any questions for us lauren no i don't really have anything i i just really appreciate that you guys um have made this podcast because there's a lot of people like me that you know, have stories or have questions and I feel like it's not spoken about nearly enough. Um, Like I said to you guys earlier, I don't really, even in my immediate group of friends, it's not something that we really dig deep into, but it's so nice to exchange and to kind of bring it out on like a platter so that people know that they're not alone. And then like it helps um, with our understanding and just, yeah, sharing these stories so that, you know, the people are more aware it's not just the unspoken thing or you speak about it with like certain people it should be like an open thing that we all talk about and embrace so it's really nice to be a part of we've really loved having you on the show this podcast is hosted edited and produced by us kate robinson and maria birch moranga just two biracial gals making a podcast by ourselves Uh, The music you're listening to is by Green Twins and this is their amazing song, Take It Slow. You can find it on Spotify. Our podcast was developed with the support of Footscray Community Arts Centre through the generous use of their incredible podcast studio slash dungeon here on the lands of the Kulin Nation. (laughs) Sorry. Oh my God. Dungeon. (laughs) Sorry. If you are biracial and interested in being interviewed by us, get in touch. Uh, You can send us your questions or anything you want us to cover. Or if you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, we are all ears. You can find us on Instagram at beingbiracialpodcast. Or you can send us an email at beingbiracialpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like this episode, why not subscribe? Bye. Bye.